When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ah, wasn't the old wireless great, though? Now and then a little difficult to hear, perhaps, but it was great. And what we'd like to do for the next hour or so is recall some memories of light music programmes which have come to you over the waves from 1926 until today. Imagine that hopping out of your headphones in the early days of the crystal sets. But one facet of broadcasting remains constant over 50 years, and that is that it has always had its element of fun. My first broadcast was in the Gresham Hotel, way, way, way back as a singer. It was called the Aberdeen Hall. We rehearsed that morning beautifully, had the microphones on the stage. It was grand. But when I went in that night, the microphone was swinging way up high. I said to myself, my God, how am I going to sing from here away up there? <laughs> so when the time came for me to sing the song, <laughs> this the laugh of the part, two postmen come out an A ladder, one of these big A ladders, and I had to climb up the top of the ladder, sing to the microphone, and the floor was going up and down. It was like a yo-yo. That was Johnny Butler recalling his first broadcast. This is the voice of a lady who sang on the opening night of broadcasting, Joan Burke. The opening night, uh, the late Lieutenant Arthur Duff played my accompaniments because uh, my sister, who usually played for me, we didn't just know what was going to happen and we thought, well, maybe he knows or he won't be so embarrassed or put out or anything and he'd be able to. So he came along and played for me. And, of course, he was a lovely pianist. He was a beautiful, he was a very, very good musician. And, of course, the late Colonel Brassey thought him a very excellent musician. And of course, the only fault he had to find with poor Arthur was that Arthur wouldn't work as hard as he, Colonel Brassey, a German, would work. Ah, uh, wasn't it always one of our failings? Another early broadcaster was Sam Joy. Oh, yes, indeed, as I remember the first broadcaster. I had to ring up from uh, Seamus Clandillon. Uh, I knew Seamus very well. We worked together uh, up in Derry, as a matter of fact, when he was there. He was uh, National Health, I was Labour Exchange. Uh, came back and he said, Sam, I want you to come down to the station. Uh, we called the station, it's in, uh, you know where Denmark Street is? I do, of course. Well, uh, Denmark House there'll be the first broadcast. Uh, would you like to come? Hey, God, I'd be delighted. Highly honoured. Certainly I'll go. So that was OK. Then I met Cecil O'Shockensy, an old pal of mine, I told him. He says, oh, I'm going to, Sam. I said, oh, God, that's great. So, however, we all turned up. 
and uh, I remember going up the old back stairs there and got into uh, a place, oh, it was uh, little rooms and one of the rooms where the grand piano, just enough for Vincent O'Brien to creep in to sit down and play. Of course, that was different. We were outside and then they had it marked. Now, you'll have to stand here, he says. Stand on that spot while you're singing. So, needless to say, we were thinking more about the damn spot than we were about what we were singing about. <laughs> However, I opened there and uh, I sang, as far as I remember, Jogging Along the Highway. And uh, the second song I chose was The Star of the Country Down. And I remember it quite well. That was Sam Joy. Now, one of the most famous dance orchestras of the 20s was that of J. Clark Barry. They had a weekly slot in the early radio schedules. This is an extract from a newspaper of the day. The visit of the Blue Hungarian Band to Dublin towards the close of the last century turned a young Dublin accountant, a talented pianist, into a professional musician. Since then, John Clark Barry has provided good music to well-known families, institutions and organisations. He has played for Marconi and for Harry Reynolds on his return from Copenhagen as champion professional cyclist of the world. He has given constant support to charity and by his organisation of the revival of Irish music concert in the Rotunda under the patronage of the most reverend Dr Croke, Archbishop of Castle, he started the movement for the establishment of the fish cure. And looking down the running order, as broadcast for the 22nd of April 1926, the Clark Barry Orchestra were playing things like I Want to Be Happy from No Known Annette, Dipping in the Moonlight, Somebody's Darling, and of course, Moonlight and Roses. Now, reading that newspaper report which you just heard was John Clark Barry's daughter, Vic Clark Barry. Yes, uh, this, our first broadcast was on uh, 2RN there in, in Denmark Street. And uh, the, I was the drummer with my father's band. He was a pianist. And uh, the first violinist was Ernest McGrath. And uh, the bass player was, Ed, was Ned Walsh. The flute and piccolo was Regazzoni. And the uh, banjo was Louis Parodi. Now, there was a saxophonist and clarinet. I cannot, I know his face well, but I cannot recall his name. And I don't know whether he's alive. I don't think so. Myself was the drummer, and uh, they were um, oh, the drums. I remember them trying to uh, where we put the drums, where we fix the drums. Seamus Hughes, where we fix them, right here, everywhere about the place. They did fix them anyway, but getting them in up those narrow stairs in, in Denmark Street was, although they weren't the flashy kits that they have now, but still, it was quite an ordeal getting them up the stairs. And carrying on the Clark Barry tradition, his son Alfie is today drummer in the RTE Light Orchestra. the voice of Edie O'Dwyer, who sang in the first week of broadcasting and who has also a continuing interest in our radio station because her late husband Michael and brother-in-law Ned Nugent were both engineers with Radio Erin and today her granddaughter Cathy Nugent can be heard singing with the RTE Light Orchestra.
From the outset, the number one army band had a prominent place in the two RN schedules. The first broadcast of the number one army band took place from Beggar's Bush Barracks from the gymnasium in, on January the 1st, 1926. This is absolutely correct. Dermot O'Hara, for many years conductor of the Radio and Light Orchestra and a former conductor of the Number One Army Band, remembers Fritz Brase. In the years to come, he did an enormous amount of good work. He lectured to children in the mansion house and there were broadcast talks which were intended for children, but of course the whole country listened into those broadcasts. His foreign accent fascinated people. This powerful personality came over the air with such an enormous impact that you felt that the man was present in the room with you. And during the 1930s, the army band broadcast regularly from a setting which, to the average Dubliner, had rather more amorous than musical connotations, the holler in the Phoenix Park. They were broadcast live. And when I say live, lively also. Fritz Brasa arrived and the place was packed. The public adored him and started to conduct. But the moment he started to conduct, the children started playing Red Indians and Cowboys. And he turned round and shouted at them, Go home to your mother. Of course, it all came over the air. It was terrible. is an old 78 record featuring on accordion Albert Healy. Forty-four years ago, this year, I made my first broadcast and I remember it so well, I remember when it was so well because it happened to be a very, very eventful year in Ireland. It was the year of the Eucharistic Congress in 1932 and my broadcast, my first broadcast was on the Saturday of Eucharistic Congress week at the end of June. I started as a classical pianist, yes, that was my, that was my beginning and uh, after a few years I was slotted into lighter entertainment, lighter type of music, variety of music and one thing or another and I did uh, quite a lifetime of that here. Uh, the director of that particular section at the time was uh, John McDonough and I think he heard him on one of my broadcasts or something like that and he thought it would be a good idea if he uh, offered me something in his section too. So he brought me in one day and told me he was planning a series, a family series, the first time this had ever been done in Ireland and he intended to call it Around the Fire, it was to be a country kitchen idea and uh, all the people would sit around this big fire and each one sang and there was a little bit of script and what happened in the district during the week and all that type of thing so uh, gradually the program came together and we did eventually launch into it about, I think about oh about 40 years ago now uh, around the fire started 
And, of course, Albert Healy has been associated with so many popular programmes, notably his series of piano duets with Molly Phillips and the many broadcasts he made with his uncles, the Thunder Brothers. Well, that was the sound of the Thunder Brothers there with Albert Healy in full action. Now, this is the signature tune of one of our best-known band leaders, Billy Carter. broadcast in the 30s regularly on Saturday nights from the La Scala Ballroom in what was built as Dublin's Opera House, then became the Capitol Theatre before being ravaged for the greater glory of Mammon. Billy recalls the technical aspects. The rigging up, as far as we were concerned, consisted of a mic, which was about the size of an alarm clock. And this was on a sling, on a frame, and a sling across it, and wires attached to it which had to be attached to it, screwed up. And there was no such thing as a switch on it to cut it off. It was on live all the time, that you couldn't switch it off. They gave us the billio, the sign that you're off. That was Billy Carter. And now here's a voice which will bring back a lot of memories, Hubert Valentine, who for many years now has been living in America. <laughs> first local job, as they say, was a 15 minutes engagement with Vincent O'Brien as accompanist. That was in 1934. Then the regular radio engagements and my accompanists were Kitty O'Callaghan, Molly Phillips, Lucien and Anne, Dermot O'Hara and Albert Healy. I can't recall anything more happy. They were, they were stern, they were rough, quiet. You'd be very nervous. Oh, Lord save us, you'd be nervous, you know when you get through with it. Well, that was very nice, that was very well. You didn't know whether you were good, bad, or indifferent, but you found out later on in a couple of weeks. I recall the afternoon broadcast from the Gresham, and I don't know how many people can recall this, from Robert Roberts Cafe in Grafton Street. There were the afternoon tea concerts. Then there were the celebrity concerts from the Gaiety, with the well-known conductors, Vincent O'Brien, Lieutenant Doyle, Michael Bowles, and visiting conductors. I had a Korean conductor when I sang with the orchestra. The artists whom I had the pleasure of working with, the female singers, for instance, was Lena Danielli, Rini Flynn, Mae Devitt, Cecily Kenny, Maureen Fenning, Patricia Black, Errol O'Reilly, and later on, Veronica Dunn. 
the male singers. The tenors were Willie Hobbs, Willie O'Toole, Harold Dempsey, Cecil O'Shaughnessy, and I believe Bob McCullough and the Flood boy, brothers from Drogheda, if I'm right, and James Johnson from Belfast. The basses and the baritones were Leslie Jones, Billy Lemass, Sam Joy, Sam Mooney, Robert Irwin, Michael O'Higgins, John Linsky, and a great baritone from the west of Ireland, Lavelle, Jack Nordell, and Martin MacDonald. Who can forget the band concerts featuring the number one army band, the Guards Band and the Artane Band, and even the Transport Band and St. James's Band. You sang a few songs in between their selections. These were broadcast from the depot, with, I believe it was uh, Superintendent Delaney was in charge of the, the Guards Band in those days, and Portobello with Fitz, Colonel Fitzbrase, and uh, from Bray, the Esplanade in Bray, and Stevens Green. Well, that was Hubert Valentine. Now, light music, like every other department in Radio Erin, has had its share of controversy. In 1934, an anti-jazz campaign was launched with a march of 3,000 young people from South Leitrim, and this eventually led to the almost total extinction of any kind of popular music on the air because it was all lumped together under that hated heading of jazz. At that time, Kathleen Evans had just joined the gramophone library. Actually, dance music was called jazz. I mean, people used to talk about going to jazz dances to distinguish them from Cayley dances. And everything was jazz. Henry Hall would be a jazz. No, a, a, a real jazz today wouldn't accept Henry Hall at all. He was purely a dance music, you know, for dancing on the floor. Uh, Carl Gibbons, Geraldo and his orchestra, Joe Loss, they were all called jazz. They were not, they were dance music. But they were all cause, called jazz music. And uh, there was no actual veto or definite prohibition, but they were frowned about. And I think I asked one time where they banned, and nobody said no, and nobody said yes, but just to be discreet. Kathleen Evans, the former controller of programmes, Rebotha Farrakhoin. I believe before my time in, in radio, uh, there were some denunciations from the pulpit of what was known as jazz, ignorantly known as jazz. Now, jazz that time, it gives an idea of the standing of jazz, that they were never even numbered. Every other record was numbered. They were kept in a box, and at the end of the year, they were disposed of to charitable institutions and um, hospitals. They were just handed out because they, I mean, they weren't even considered worth keeping. Later on, when we did try and get the library working on some kind of, of a professional footing, I tried to keep a few of the top favourites each year because they used to be asked for as incidental to plays of the period of the year in which they were current. And uh, I kept a few. But they were never numbered. They were handed out. And the only provide I was told that every Christmas those are given to girls' clubs and night shelters for homeless boys and uh, institut charitable institutions. And I also, there was the very uh, stern prohibition that no expense must be incurred at the disposal of them. People could be rung up and told there are 30 jazz records here, but if you want them, you have to come and collect them. And in the 40s, the controversy arose again. The late Robert Brennan became uh, director of broadcasting uh, after, on the retirement of, um, of Seamus O'Brien. Uh, Robert Brennan had been our minister uh, to Washington for 12 years before he came to us. And uh, while he appreciated many things in the American scene, uh, there were a few things that he just detested. And one of these things was what he also called jazz. Robert Brennan said flatly, no jazz on Radio Erin. Um, this affected, there was no light music department, uh, as I said, at that time. But it affected the drama and variety department. And there was one uh, lady in the department, 
So she asked to see uh, Mr. Robert Brennan. She wanted to know, did no jazz include no swing, no pop, no B-pop, and so on? Right to the various categories. Now, the fact of the matter is that Mr. Brennan did not distinguish very clearly between these several categories. So, uh, like the decent gentleman he was, he threw up the sponge and let her carry on with her light music, whatever category. Twenty years later, RTE was to play no small part in Louis Stewart's success at the Montreux Jazz Festival. And today, Louis is recognised as one of the greatest jazz guitarists in the world. Louis Stewart. Let's go back again now to the 1940s and the young Bing Crosby, one of the staple ingredients in Radio Aaron's request programmes. Or was he? Bing Crosby, yes. He, he, he was a band for quite some time. The, not on the score of um, that he wasn't clean, but slightly decadent or a thing that decent Irish people shouldn't be looking for. They should be looking for well, John McCormack and uh, Mother McCree and a little bit of heaven, those were considered so. But he was banned for he. They came. They they came. They were all came under the title of crooners. And in a Radio Erin interview in 1948, the distinguished composer E. J. Moran hardly gives reason to believe that any such ban would upset him. But as for crooning, I think it's flaccid, emasculate, and almost positively indecent. All in fact, right. I can't bear it. It, it makes me feel physically sick, and I, uh, the crooner makes me... Uh, I think I almost want to go to the lavatory and vomit. Please lend your little ear to my please. Lend a ray of cheer to my please. Tell me that you love me too. Gracie Fields was clean too. She was all right, particularly if she sang Ave Maria. That was Gracie Fields, of course, passed and sanctioned. This is Kevin Roach, Head of Light Music. My own uh, first entry into broadcasting, I suppose, was as a freelance cellist and bass player um, when I took part in several series of light music programmes. And the very first of those was in a group called the Romany Players. And it was, um, it was all gypsy music, Romanian and Hungarian and Bulgarian and so on, fantastic repertoire. 
and the leader of the Romany players was Madame Van Alst. Um, she had a, a group, I think it was a quintet, that played in the restaurant of the Savoy Cinema at that time. And it was a very fine group indeed, and she was a, a, an excellent violinist and a very strong personality. I think there was a bit of the gypsy in herself. Um, and two of the people in that group, in the broadcasting group, were Richie Burbridge and Jack Gregory, who are now members of the Light Orchestra. Then there was a series of uh, country and western music uh, programmes. It was called Covered Wagon. It was a serial with music. And um, I was in charge of the music group in that series. Yeah. And one of the members of it, not for all of the programmes, but for some of them certainly, was uh, an unknown at that time young guitarist named Val Dunigan. I, I think that was probably his start in broadcasting. Of course, my memories of the very early Radio N in Henry Street, I suppose, are very thrilling memories. You don't look back on them, I suppose, as as uh, something a bit sort of primitive in the early days of radio or anything like that, because to me, being on the radio was such a tremendous thrill that I came up there, and of course it was like ABC Studios in New York. It looked fantastic to me because it was my first time ever to broadcast. I can remember going upstairs in the old sort of curtain-type studios, and I got involved in a programme called Covered Wagon, actually, which was a sort of a semi-musical storyline-type cowboy thing. Tom Studley was in there, I remember, and a fellow who was doing little sound effects, a fellow called Joe Lynch, running about banging and making noises when the Indians came. <laughs> and Jack McGowan was on it, God rest him. That's right, he was another one that was involved in that. It was written by a chap called Sidney Carroll. And in those days, I was very quiet, and I sat in a corner and just played guitar and thought myself very lucky to be part of all this. Other memories I had, I did a, a radio series with Rose Brennan. Uh, that was about 1948, of course. And my first involvement, of course, on radio was when I did the old Donnelly Sausages sponsored programmes with Niall Bowden. I was working on the seafront down in Bray up on the bandstand in a little thing they used to call the Coons. I used to get up and sing there for about five quid a week with a big sign up saying, Matinee if fine, it used to say. And the people sat in the came and sat in the deck chairs and, and I would get up and sing songs and the woman who ran the show would walk around with a box collecting pennies and uh, I used to get about five quid a week for that and I was on the show one night and, and with a pal of mine a chap called Bruce Clark who played piano and guitar and um, I was told I was wanted at the stage door stage door that's a funny out in the field at the back actually so <laughs> I came out and, and uh, Niall Borden was there and of course I knew Niall Borden's work very well. He was very well known on the radio. And, and uh, I came out and he said, would you like to get another chap with, with you two and, and make a, a trio and, and do some programmes? So we found a bass player, a fellow called Kevin Whelan from Bray. And we went up and did a, a sort of an audition. And uh, we became the Donnelly Music Makers. And we used to do two programmes every week and turn them out like sausages. I don't know how we did it, you know. We were we were absolutely, <laughs> absolutely working in the dark. I used to spend all night at home trying to scribble out music, you know, and uh, writing, uh, as my father used to say, I was like a crow looking into a bottle. I didn't know what I was doing half the time, but we managed to get all, <laughs> all these programmes together. And that was the beginning of my radio career, so I'd love to say thanks to Henry Street for starting me off. Walk tall, walk straight and look the world right in the eye That's what my mama told me when I was about knee high She said, son, be a proud man and hold your head up high Walk tall, walk straight and look the world right in the eye Walk tall, walk straight and look the world right in the eye Walk tall now, Val Dunican reminds us, in fact, that from the outset, 2RN was a commercial station, one with statutory permission to transmit advertisements. In 1927, these adverts brought in £165. The first director, Seamus Clandillon, said of them, from a programme point of view, they are a nuisance, and they are regarded by listeners as an impertinence. In 1928, advertising revenue came to £28. Clandillon's attitude to advertising is still to be found today, just as there are listeners all over the country who prefer the sponsored programmes to the RTE ones. 
Over the years, these shows have given many of us our entry into broadcasting and kept a number of independent recording studios working. But it may be only a question of time before they are phased out and replaced by station programmes completely with spot advertising. But of all the many and varied sponsored programmes we've had down through the years, surely one of the best-loved began like this. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Irish Hospital Sweepstakes programme for your entertainment. And remember... How many of us grew up to the nightly benedictions of Ian Priestley-Mitchell and Bart Bastable on the old Sweeps programme, first broadcast in October 1930? In the 30s, uh, apart from Ian, you had uh, Jack O'Sheehan, who was the head of publicity uh, for, for the Sweeps. He did a lot of broadcasting uh, on the Sweep radio programme. And you had, uh, in e every programme, there was a feature, a racing feature, which uh, was presented by Michael Byrne. That's Frankie Byrne's father. He's dead now, Lord of myself. Michael Sport Byrne. I had, uh, uh, from that time until 1960, when the sweet program went off the air, uh, some very pleasant years uh, working with, with people like um, Ian Priestley Mitchell, with whom I had 14 years. Um, and learned an awful lot from him because he was he was one of the most professional and and uh, exciting uh, people to be with and now on behalf of the Irish Hospital sweepstakes this is Ian Priest Limitral wishing you health happiness and good fortune and remember, it makes no difference where you are. You can wish upon a star. Good night, you all. Good night. Ladies and gentlemen, we bring you The Sound of the Light. Our Light Orchestra, which came into being in 1948, mainly due to the government's realisation of their inability during the war and afterwards to get the voice and the attitudes of Ireland across to the rest of the world. Ribor the Farrakhoin recalls how it came about. When the war was over, the government proposed the establishment of a shortwave service. In radio, of course, we had to plan for a situation in which we would be operating shortwave service. We had to review the staffing, find out what gaps there were, and uh, try to supply them. Now, one of the things in this planning was a proposal for the setting up of a light orchestra, which would be a second orchestra in radio. Um, briefly, Although the shortwave project as a whole was abandoned, the, there were survivals. The, the Radio and Light Orchestra is part and parcel of the daily operation of radio. It uh, covers a very wide uh, range of music, uh, from uh, Irish music, both uh, traditional and, and art music, uh, ranging from that to... Uh, to pop. Um, it, is of, it is a very flexible body and can join with the soloists, singers, instrumentalists. It can join with the radio and players in musical documentaries and so on. 
Uh, it is once linked with the Radio N players by the late Morris Gorham in his book, 40 Years of Irish Broadcasting. He said that the two most valuable assets that uh, Radio N had were the Radio N players and the Radio N Light Orchestra. The first conductor of the Radio N Light Orchestra was uh, Eamon O'Gallaghan. He remained for uh, approximately a year and uh, his place was then taken by Dermot O'Hara, uh, who remained as uh, conductor of the Light Orchestra uh, into the 60s. I came to the Radio Air and Light Orchestra in 1949. As far as I can recollect, there were 22 players and later 27. We did about three or four broadcasts a week. A variety programme, programme of Irish music and a programme of classical music, which generally took place in the Phoenix Hall. Uh, we rehearsed in Portobello, but mostly recorded in Phoenix Hall and, of course, Concert Hall, as it was then called, was broadcast live. It was a young and enthusiastic group. Um, it had... Dermot O'Hara as a, a young uh, conductor fresh from the Army School of Music and they put on some great performances. And the sound that was achieved in those days, in spite of uh, studios like Portobello, which were very tiny, even for an orchestra of, of 28 players, uh, was amazingly good. Kevin Roach. The sound indeed was amazingly good, especially when they were playing their own Irish music. One of the principal aims in creating this orchestra was, of course, to make it a professional playing of Irish music uh, much more common than it had hitherto been, and uh, incidentally to increase the number the, the recording of properly arranged Irish music. This has been always a feature of the orchestra's performance and has involved um, Irish composers and arrangers uh, and Irish soloists, vocal and instrumental, and very much to the enrichment of um, performance of Irish music throughout the country. It was virtually a revelation to me to hear a fully professional, full-time orchestra play Irish music for the first time ever in my experience. The contrast with the respect to outside amateur groups and to to some uh, semi-professional groups, with respect to all the work they did in the past, there was no comparison. The next major event that happened, of course, was in 1961 when the television service was launched and the first director general was appointed over radio and television um, that was the appointment of Ed Roth. I think he uh, was rather surprised to find himself in charge of a radio service as well as a television service. One of the very big interests that he did take in radio was in the light orchestra. And he got this uh, bee in his bonnet almost um, of developing it into an orchestra with a special sound. And he cast around for an eminent musician who would help him to achieve this. And uh, he found Frank Chaxfield in London. I think uh, the, the, the musicians regarded, <laughs> viewed me with some suspicion in the early days. And, and, and uh, why not? Because there was a, 
there was a, an unknown to them coming in, or perhaps just known by name, coming in and uh, organizing the orchestra. Uh, but when when we really got down to things, and after about three days, we were all extremely good friends, and they were they were, we started to talk about phrasing within the brass team and and all this sort of thing, breathing together, which they they weren't doing, and and uh, uh, lungs and short notes, of which we won't get too technical over it, but. Uh, and they then started rehearsing in a corner as a section, and I found great enthusiasm there. One interesting experiment Frank Chaxfield made was a stereo television broadcast with one track on television and the other on radio. And this, this meant a, a terrific job for the engineering staff, and I, I believe they, there was a big, um, a big write-up on this in one of the, uh, one of the engineering magazines uh, congratulating them because... They had to really do their knitting with uh, because we used we used one transmitter for radio, of course, and and uh, and of course the television side. You see, um, in other words, half of the orchestra was coming out of the radio speaker, and uh, and the other one section of the orchestra was coming out of the television speaker. But it was not the sort of thing that could be rehearsed. You see, it wasn't, so it wasn't really until we really went on the air and they could drop the radio side to let us rehearsed that we really knew that that it was happening. Unfortunately, most of the listeners didn't know it was happening either, and they just switched on their radios to hear, as it were, well, sort of half an orchestra making rather strange noises. They were quick to let us know about the curious sounds they were receiving. One of the long-established pillars of Irish broadcasting is a gentleman known as Tommy O'Brien. He's from Clonmel. And on his visits from Clonmel to Dublin, he used to entertain a family in Dublin with recitals of his superb collection of operatic records. And then in 1950, he got the idea of broadening his horizons. The result was that when I was in Dublin next time, I had an interview with the director of music, Fachno Hanrahan, who apparently was very much intrigued at the idea of a chap from an Irish provincial town spending his annual holidays year after year attending opera at Covent Garden, instead of basking in the sunshine on some golden beach. At any rate, I was told to write scripts for, I think, four 20-minute programmes, which were to be called Covent Garden Memories. In due course, I sent up the scripts, they were accepted, and I've been sending them up ever since. And of all his records, which Tommy has played for us down through the years, which has proved most popular? There's no doubt whatever about the answer. The American baritone John Charles Thomas singing Tom Moore's Bendemere Stream. Over and over again I've played that one, and every time I did, in came requests for yet another repeat. Why has it been so popular? Well, it's a lovely old song, for one thing, and the melody is familiar, as it is virtually the same as that of the Mountains of Morden. Then it happens to be a very, very rare record, and then, of course, there's the singer, the man who was once described by a famous American critic as John Charles Thomas and his million-dollar voice. A good description, you may think, as once again I play you the number one favourite. There's a power of roses by Bendemere Stream And the nightingale sings round it all the day long In the time of my childhood T'was like a sweet dream To sit in the roses and hear the bird song that bar and its music I never forget but oh when alone in the bloom of the year I think is the nightingale singing By the calm bend of me. 
In recent years, RTE has become involved in international light music events such as the Prix Jean Antoine, organised by Radio Monte Carlo, and song festivals at Sopot in Poland and Ljubljana in Yugoslavia. The Prix Jean Antoine is awarded to the best musical programmes suitable for broadcast in countries of different languages. This prize was won by RTE in 1968 with How to Get Really Involved in Music and again in 1969 with My Highly Unusual Musical Experience, both of them written and presented by Norris Davidson and produced by Kevin Roach. The programmes were witty and original, and they treated music, particularly classical music, in a manner which was completely new to the Irish wavelength. Before my eyes, a cello had given birth to a violin. There, there, nothing the matter with those strings, eh? Now we need some hot water. No! Varnish, cold. Of course, all the female instruments immediately went mad. And then the brass began to make disgusting jokes about what had happened. Instantly, I took command. Some time had elapsed owing to this wretched business and the tea interval was approaching. So I decided to go to the major work in the first part of the concert with some slight allowance for wasted time. So I commanded Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9, the choral, but omitting movements 1, 2 and 3 and beginning with movement 4 at the Allegro Assai. Of course, I conveyed this in a flash by means of a signal known to all musicians. And in subsequent years, we were twice second on the prize lists, with Variations on Three Blind Mice, written and presented by Brendan Balfe and produced by Roisin Larrigan, and with The Green Linnet, a programme of ballads, dance tunes and marches from Ireland, reflecting the high esteem in which Napoleon Bonaparte was once held by the Irish. The Green Linnet was written and produced by Tony McMahon. Here's a short extract from Variations on Three Blind Mice. Hello and good night. In 1927... A young man left the Paris Conservatoire with nothing more than a certificate in his pocket, a violin under his arm and a burning fire in his heart, the consuming fire of ambition. That young man was you, Melvin Bergman. For you'd seen your first talking film and you decided that you'd forsake your career as a concert violinist and make your way to the glittering mecca of the motion picture industry, Hollywood, USA. Things were not easy, there were many disappointments, you didn't work for 22 years, but you persevered, and today you stand as one of the finest exponents of the violin, an artist to your fingertips, your entire income deriving from your performances to film audiences. Now showing Frankenstein meets Snow White, seats at 40, 50 and 70 pence, performance starting shortly, cue to the left please, standing room only in the stalls, standing room only in the stalls. Variations on Three Blind Mice by Brendan Balfe. Uh, the programme, I mean, not the music. In October 1962, Harry Thulier introduced the first Irish Top Ten, which is still broadcast every week. The Irish Top Ten coincided with the growth of a native recording industry. Katie Daly, by the late Tom Dunphy with the Royal Show Band, was generally regarded as the first successful Irish show band record. After some years, a feeling of dissatisfaction with the Top Ten spread through the business. So, ten of the best, a selection picked each week by the Light Music Department, filled the gap until a new chart was set up by the RMI. And, though not currently based purely on sales, this chart still remains. One thing you can rely on with any chart, somebody is bound to be unhappy with it at some stage or another. Anyway, 
RTE kept pace with the expansion of the local recording industry with regular programmes such as Pop Call, and they helped along a business which established a new awakening of interest in native talent and less uh, slavish adherence to the British charts. A new breed of local star emerged, mostly via the ballrooms to the recording studios. But alongside the local pop explosion came the ballad boom, reflected in programmes such as The Seventeen Club, Ballads of a Saturday and Prab Secure. Today, Ireland has a very healthy recording industry. The complete technical processes involved in the making of a record, from studio to finished disc, can now take place in the country. And already there are signs of Irish singers and records winning acceptance on the international scene. While at home, the business provides considerable employment and brings enormous pleasure to people all over the country. Today, we still have pop and popular programmes. Ring-a-ding-ding, RTE lovers! He's the guy who plays you all the charts. He's first in all the hearts. It's Larry Gogan, your son, RTE. Brothers and sisters, we are going travelling. It's all too much. That's Larry. For ten years, Ireland's number one disc jockey, and he keeps on trucking every Thursday at seven. Yes, of course, music on the move, which, with the early morning programmes for the past eight years has introduced service broadcasting to RTE, including nationwide traffic reports. And, of course, Tracer Davison is probably the best-known Irish voice to listeners as far away as Australia, New Zealand and America, due to her many international link-ups. Hi there. Welcome to Airs and Races. This is Val Joyce. Mr Val Joyce, every Saturday for three and a half hours, the longest regular programme in the schedule, as Val always says, the young dog for the hard road, and about the same time, you may have noticed a new addition to your weekday mornings. Well, of course, modesty forbids and all of that sort of thing. And, of course, there are many more regular light music programmes like Music for Middlebrows with Des Kyo, Hospital's Requests, The Long Note, Rock Fox with Jazz Magazine, there's Ken Stewart and Ken's Club, Noel Andrews with Country Music Time, Club Nanog with Lorna Madigan, and, of course, Valerie McGovern, Brendan Balfe, Mike Murphy, Liam DeValley, Morgan O'Sullivan, Michael Maguire, Garrod O'Tierney, Pat Kenny, Arthur Murphy, Vincent Handley, and so many more. And, indeed, not forgetting the man I consider Mr Broadcasting in Ireland, and whose career has spanned almost this entire programme. Yes, Mr J. Lenane. Well, in another 50 years' time, will we still be listening to RTE? Or will we be tuning in our button-sized transistors to Radio Rathgar, or Radio China, or maybe the big new commercial station, Radio Mars? Whatever it happens to be, let's hope that broadcasting then will still be fun, as it was for Billy Carter back in the 30s. We had done, I think it was about three broadcasts, very successfully, I always remember that on Shockland Coursing Club were having their annual dance there. And we were broadcasting. Two lads came up and leaned across the stand, the bandstand, it was about four foot high, directly in front of the mic. And one said to the other, Is that the thing that the sound goes through? 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.